Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome. It's great to be with you. We're going to be diving into the topic of gender today, gender identity, how it develops in childhood. And we'll also discuss uh, whether mental health is showing an, impro- an improvement when a social transition occurs to one of the LGBTQ identities. And what does our Catholic faith say about transitioning? I'll be joined in just a moment by psychologist Dr. Andrew Sodegren, and we'll dive into this important topic of gender ideology in the culture. I'll also be joined to share with you about a new project here at Relevant Radio on the night train, a really exciting mystery series. I am a sucker for mystery, and I love mystery books, so I'm very excited for this in-house production of On the Night Train by the Merry Beggars. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Also, I was really fascinated Um, If you watch The Real Housewives, and I never have, but I was fascinated by a story that came out this week. One of The Real Housewives of Dubai uh, revealed recently that she survived genital mutilation as a child. And it's interesting because this was done to preserve her virginity. And I want to talk about this because I think sometimes people equate Barbaric practices such as this that this woman went through with our Catholic faith and the idea of saving intimacy for marriage and equating a barbaric physical uh, damaging mutilation of the body uh, to a way of life that a person chooses to pursue and live out. So we'll talk a little bit about that later on during the show. And yes, Patrick, there's a Real Housewives of Dubai, which I had no idea there was a Real Housewives of Dubai until earlier today and when I saw this story. But we're more so going to talk about that idea of how people can think that some of our principles that we choose to live by as people of faith, they think that they're forceful and barbaric and mean, but we're going to talk about the comparison and understanding the difference between free will and pursuing a religious ideology versus us forcefully and at times through bodily mutilation being pressured into a way of living. There's a big difference. So we'll talk about that today on the show. Joining me now is Dr. Andrew Sodergren, and we're going to dive into gender identity. There's a more recent book that has come out from the St. Paul Center on the topic of sexual identity and the harmony of philosophy and science and revelation on this topic. We'll post a link on social media for you to check out the book, 
but Dr. Andrew Sodergren contributed to this book, and I'm fascinated to see some of the latest research on the topic of childhood development into this gender dysphoric craze that seems to be spreading in our country today. Dr. Sodergren, welcome to Trending. Thank you, Timory. It's so nice to be here with you. I'd like to dive into the topic that many people, I think, are confused by, this sudden onset that we're seeing of gender dysphoria for many, uh, would we argue, high school and even the adolescent college age individuals, and seeing kind of the difference between what's happening with that and also the setting in of gender identity that's uh, it does occur for childhood age mm-hmm. children as well. Yeah, so... Uh, obviously, you know, many people in our listening audience have, have, um, had some familiarity at this point or heard something about, or maybe experienced in their own social circles, this phenomenon of rapid onset gender dysphoria in which adolescents, um, begin to experience, uh, discontent and confusion and distress about being male or being female. And many of them uh, now report to these gender um, identity clinics that have popped up uh, around the country and and in much of the industrialized world seeking services, including uh, gender transitioning services, uh, such as puberty suppression and cross-sex hormones and uh, surgery. And this phenomenon is very, very concerning uh, for, for myself as a psychologist, but also for us as Catholics, uh, because we believe that the body matters and the sexuality revealed by our body is in a fundamental and essential aspect of our God-given identity, and it discloses uh, fundamental aspects of our vocation uh, to motherhood uh, or fatherhood. And so we have grave reasons to be concerned about this. And we've been, as a profession, beginning to explore what is going on here um, because this huge increase in the number of adolescents uh, showing up with gender dysphoria is really unprecedented and unexpected, Uh, even uh, just from the standpoint of secular science and statistics. It's it's a, a very unusual historical phenomenon. And as the researchers have begun to scratch the surface, we're starting to see that there's a lot of of, uh, psychological reasons um, for why a child might get to that point. And our current models of treatment are largely not addressing those issues. Interesting. You know, I think many people are asking, why is this happening? I was just talking to a therapist on Monday here in Trending, and he was saying, I've never seen so many people in the history of my practice as I am today. And it's not just a mental health crisis among gender dysphoric issues, but depression, anxiety, suicidality. Is there a connection? I know we've talked about it here on Trending that there is, but can you can make that connection between all of these common mental health crises that young people are going through today? Well, I, I think that the, the, there's probably several common factors, but the one that I always go back to that seems to be the most important is the breakdown of the family. Uh, we all know that children uh, thrive and, and develop in, in the most healthy way when they are blessed with an intact family of a biological mother and a biological father who are happily married to each other. 
that is the context that provides the best um, support for a child's development. And unfortunately, that uh, structure has broken down um, you know, considerably over the last several decades uh, to the point now where uh, it's actually becoming a rarity for a child to go from, from birth to adulthood uh, living with an intact uh, nuclear family that I described. And as that has broken down, in addition to all the other things going on for us culturally, and you add COVID and, and everything else that kids are facing today, uh, they're under tremendous stress and they begin to show a variety of different types of emotional and behavioral problems. Uh, and what we're seeing with these kids that show up in gender clinics is that they have a very large um, rate, a high rate, an elevated rate of other types of psychological problems in addition to uh, this gender issue. And oftentimes those psychological issues have long predated the gender issue. They were there first. Issues of depression, of anxiety, of social difficulties of various kinds, of body image issues and eating disorders. Uh, even we're seeing a, a fairly high rate of autism spectrum disorders among these yes. people showing up at gender clinics. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, as I was indicating, the, the the model of care that's been pushed um, and, and presented as the gold standard, even though it's not, uh, has been one to, to encourage transition and to go down this medical route of altering the body. And it leaves these underlying psychological problems unaddressed. And it's interesting we, you mentioned, mm -hmm. go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say, we just do our young people such a terrible disservice by not first treating the psychological distress and wounds underneath and seeing uh, if, if the gender issue resolves uh, in, in due course. It's interesting that you mentioned the autism spectrum diagnosis increasing among young people as well, because I've seen a lot of the research over the last couple of years and the connection between the autism spectrum and our uh, decrease in our capacity to socialize due to technology. And then it's more so this inability to socialize for many who are on the spectrum from techno technological use, but also in the research, we're seeing that this transgender um, sudden onset, especially happening among young girls, has mm -hmm. a link to many women actually experiencing autism. And this is one of the ways that we're seeing um, this confusion playing out is in this exploration of gender. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for individuals on the autism spectrum, I think that there are, there are two issues that, that kind of play into this. One is, is the social difficulties that they tend to have. They have a harder time reading social cues and fitting in socially. So their experience growing up has often been one of, I don't fit with my peer group. Mm -hmm. And that's stressful. And it leaves one questioning when you get to adolescence. Why? Why don't I fit? What's wrong with me? And wishing that maybe they had a group that they could fit into. And the other is rigid stereotypical thinking, which is a classic uh, marker of autism spectrum disorders. Uh, and so the way that shows up in, in relation to gender is very rigid stereotypes around boys and men are this way and girls and women are that way. And if I don't fall in this very narrow, rigid category, that must mean I'm something else. And they can get stuck in, in a very obsessive thinking about 
how they don't fit in this category and I have to find the right category uh, and, and really get latched into this idea that, that maybe that means I'm trans. Mm. And you just hit on something so important that our culture is so emotive today. I don't feel feminine. I don't feel masculine. I don't feel connected to myself. Uh, who is it? Demi Lovato, who suddenly has decided that she is feeling more in touch with her feminine side. So she's returning to her she, her pronouns after a while of identifying as they, them pronouns. I find it so interesting because psychologically, this is a newer phenomena where we, and I'm guilty of it. You know, I hear it in conversation someone will ask me a question they'll say how do you feel about x y and z in the church and i said well this is what i think about what the church teaches and this is what the church teaches it's not and i'll say it doesn't matter what i feel about it mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's a check for you know anyone who's thinking that yeah we need to get connected with truth not just what we're emoting at the moment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very true. Masculinity and femininity in the end aren't really feelings. You know, these are these are qualities and we can make judgments about the extent to which I match a a a particular image of masculinity or femininity, but it's not really a feeling. I don't really know what it means to feel like a man or to feel like a woman. These are objective realities, not not emotional states. If you're just joining us, that's Dr. Andrew Sodergren. You can find him at ruawoodinstitute.org. That's R-U-A-H woodsinstitute.org. We'll post a link on social media as well as in the podcast notes. Dr. Sodergren, something you mentioned earlier, uh, you said a part of this increase in the LGBTQ identity, depression, anxiety, suicidality, that autism spectrum, all of it in many ways it goes back to especially what we believe as Catholics of the breakdown of the family, uh, kids needing biological mother and father. But you mentioned a key component that I think is challenging today's society. You mentioned the need for a biological mother and father, but a biological mother and father, you said, who are happily married to each other. I thought that was such a keen part of what you said, because I hear from parents across the nation day in and day out who are sharing with me over the last couple of years about their children who have this sudden onset of gender dysphoria, never having experienced or shown any signs of it before. And always in the story at some point, there's some discrepancy of an unsettlement within the context of the marriage, maybe one absent parent, one parent checked out, dealing with some sort of drug or alcohol addiction or refusing to participate in the faith of the family life. Can you speak to how we need to be attentive when these crises of gender dysphoria occur in the home to what's happening with mom and dad just as much as helping to heal this child who may be experiencing the sudden onset of gender dysphoria? Absolutely. Uh, So, uh, the, the, the marriage, of course, we know from, from our Catholic teaching, but also just human experience, the marriage is the foundation of the family. And, you know, I just want to say that, that I don't want to, to um, judge anyone's, you know, unique situation. Obviously, marriage is a, is a difficult vocation and a lot of things uh, can, can go wrong in trying to live it out faithfully and, and uh, fruitfully. But nonetheless, we know that kids do best when mom and dad stay together and, and ideally have a, a happy, intact marriage where they can support each other and be there for each other. 
when kids see that among mom and dad, it tends to help them feel more secure. When there's tension in the marriage or when the marriage breaks up, it puts kids in a state of insecurity. Uh, and that leaves them prone to um, not only having behavioral or emotional problems, but they begin seeking other ways to try to secure their place in this family and to try to secure their place in the world. Uh, when the marriage is intact, they don't have to worry about that stuff as much. They, they can relax and just be a child. And it gives them uh, the example of seeing uh, what, uh, the, how, how the sexes interrelate. And it gives them healthy role models uh, to identify with and, and to, uh, to, to aspire to. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, Timory, you, you very accurately pointed out that in many of these cases of young people struggling with various psychological issues, including gender dysphoria, there are often cases of struggling marriages or divorce or um, some sad situations that maybe a parent died uh, or, or abandoned the family. These things are, are part of these kids' story, and no one's really looking at that and offering them opportunities to find healing uh, from those experiences. And so I think that's, that's where there's a real call to action for, uh, for Christian and Catholic mental health professionals is to, is to lean into those wounds and to help provide opportunities for these young people uh, to, to, to receive uh, some healing rather than just offering them drugs and surgery. Mm, isn't that profoundly needed in today's culture? I have a question too for, you know, the parent who's listening, maybe they haven't gone to therapy yet. They recognize that the breakdown within the context of the marriage is impacting the child in some way, especially mothers who are writing to me. Predominantly, we're hearing this from mothers. What advice would you give to a mother who is really trying to navigate this on her own and does not have either a present spouse or a supportive spouse through the difficulty of the gender dysphoria for their child. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this ties into something you were saying a minute ago too, about how, you know, maybe it's, it's not the marriage initially, maybe it's a mental health issue or an addiction or something like that. Um, but when um, parents are healthier, kids tend to be healthier. Uh, that's just a good rule of thumb. Uh, and so when we work with kids, for instance, one of the things we, we always keep an eye out for is do mom and dad have, you know, some significant struggles that they're not addressing uh, and might be contributing to what's going on with the child. So for the parents in the, in the listening audience, I, I would simply say, um, first of all, um, I'm, I'm also married and have children and I know how difficult it can be. And I know that for a lot of years, uh, you know, I didn't want to acknowledge that I was failing in some ways as a parent and that my issues maybe were affecting my kids. And so it, it first of all, just takes humility uh, to, to be able to say, you know, I could use some help with this. Um, maybe I should talk to somebody, maybe even just start with a friend or a priest um, and, and open up a little bit about what is it in my life that, that makes it hard for me to, to be the best parent that I can be? Um, what is it in my life that maybe uh, is, is, you know, uh, holding me back in some way from, from really being my best self? And um, start to talk about that, open up about it. And, and if you can find a good Christian or Catholic uh, therapist in your area, by all means, take advantage. 
Um, I think we all need help at different times in our lives. I know I do. Uh, and uh, every time I've been to therapy, it's, it's helped me, I think, uh, live my vocation better. Uh, and so obviously I'm a big supporter of that. Um, and recognize that, that there's nothing that, that we can screw up so bad that, that God and his infinite goodness and grace can't still use it for good. So we don't have to despair. Um, I like to tell parents that parenting is like trying not to fail too badly. Um, <laughs> and the reason I say that is because, in a sense, I'm talking to myself. I used to put a lot of pressure on myself to, to be, you know, a perfect parent and raise, raise our kids a certain way. But I had to recognize at a certain point that um, we all make mistakes and uh, God will work through those mistakes if we allow him to. Um, but we should still work on ourselves and seek the support that we need to do the best job that we can. That's psychologist Dr. Andrew Sodegren here on Trending with Tim Ray. We're going to come and talk about the topic of mental health and whether or not social transitioning for those who are identifying as LGBTQ is helpful and what our Catholic faith says about transitioning. But if you have a question, we'd love to take it. The number is 1-888-914-9149. I'll be right back here on Trending. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to Trending. We're diving this mystery in, I think, often what it feels like with this gender dysphoria, the sudden onset, uh, rapid onset, clinically what it's referred to, of people who are identifying as transgender, LGBTQ seemingly out of nowhere. We talked about how gender identity develops in children, the important role of the family, especially the parents. And if you weren't with us before, you or someone you know is struggling with this, to talk about how this comes back to the parents is so important. So I hope you'll go back and listen to the podcast, Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. You can find it at relevantradio.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast and text a link of the episode to a friend who could benefit from listening to this show. It's a simple way to spread the good news and the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Joining me now is Dr. Andrew Sodegren. You can find him at ruawoodinstitute.org. That's ruawoodsinstitute.org org r-u-a-h i will post the link on social media as well as in the podcast notes just follow me at timmery t-i-m-m-e-r-i-e coming up i'm going to talk about the exciting new program of the mystery audio mystery series we have kicking off here on relevant radio as well as to talk about sometimes those moments where people connect things such as for example, child abuse and child mutilation for the sake of religion, not Catholic religion, with what religion is in the free pursuit of, let's say, living within the context of the idea of waiting for marriage to engage in intimacy or in believing that 
there's a man and a woman and that you shouldn't physically alter, manipulate your body. It's really interesting. Real Housewives of Dubai, which I've never seen a single episode of Real Housewives, uh, but one of the stars from Real Housewives of D- Dubai has come out revealing and sharing her story about how she survived genital mutilation as a child. And it connects this whole debate over religion. And I really think how people sometimes think that by trying to live in a particular uh, religious Catholic worldview with regard to our sexuality that's oppressive and as forceful as bodily mutilation that some people experience. I really do think people sometimes go that far. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Again, joining me now is psychologist Dr. Andrew Sodegren, and we're going to dive into the topic of mental health and how mental health is not improving, the research is showing, for people who socially transition to an LGBTQ identity and how our Catholic faith touches on the importance of not transitioning. Dr. Sodegren, can you talk about the latest research and how people, not just people of faith, but the secular society is actually starting to question this only, like this one-way approach of only affirming the idea of being gender dysphoric rather than trying to treat the whole person? Yes. So I I was blessed earlier this year to speak on this issue at the Catholic Psychotherapy Association conference. And as I was preparing uh, for the conference, I was trying to get read up on on some of the most recent research on this issue. And I came across two studies that uh, I hadn't seen before. Both were published fairly recently. Uh, One was in uh, uh, 2019, the other was in 2021, so both very recent. And what's interesting about these studies is that they uh, are looking at uh, simply the aspect of social transition. So not they're not in these particular studies looking at hormones or, or surgery, but just the, the act of social transition. And they're looking at that with children. And so in one study, for instance, uh, they were looking at a, a group of German uh, children. These are grade school age children who had uh, gender dysphoria. And they were comparing uh, those who had transitioned socially uh, to to others and and seeing whether or not their psychological functioning improved uh, because the logic the prevailing logic in the culture and the prevailing logic in the in the, the medical and mental health professions has been that we when a child expresses gender dysphoria that's really a reflection of who they truly are and that their mental and emotional health will improve the more we can help them embrace that identity and and begin to live it out through social transition and then eventually on to uh, the chemical and surgical interventions. That's the prevailing logic. Um, But in these studies, that's not what they've seen. So for instance, the German study I mentioned uh, found that uh, social transition was not connected to psychological well-being in these children. It had zero effect essentially, on the, the, the mental and emotional health of, of these children. It didn't improve things at all. Uh, they were yeah. still distressed um, uh, after they had socially transitioned. But what they did find, which is, I think, really, really important, is that peer relations and family functioning, those factors did correlate with psychological functioning, not social transition. So the kids who had better friendships and better family life had higher psychological health compared to the kids who didn't. 
It didn't matter whether they had tra social transitioned or not. Yeah. This is really important. I want to dive in on that for a moment, drilling down on it. So again, the social transition had zero psychological effect, but let's say uh, the person who socially transitions to some form of LGBTQ identity, let's say they are very close to their family, and let's say the family is extremely supportive of that LGBTQ identity, that there would be positive outcomes based on those strong familial and friendship-based connections that were affirming the individual. Well, that's possible um, to an extent because you have to remember that, that we're using very limited instruments. These are just rating scales uh, regarding things like how much anxiety is the child experiencing, how much you know, depressive symptoms is the child experiencing, right? And, and so in the context you described, um, it's possible that, that if, if um, the family is, is, is functioning well, they have an intact uh, family structure, uh, and it's, it's generally a healthy family structure, and the kid has a good friend group, that yes, he might end up um, you know, looking better. But nonetheless, from a Catholic perspective, we would still say there's a problem with this picture, okay? Because health is not just a matter of having less distress. Health has, from the standpoint of a Catholic view of the person, is a much more rich and robust concept. It has to do with um, living the way that God intended us to live and fully embracing the identity as his son or daughter that we are given. And to me, I think an important part of that is accepting uh, and even coming uh, to love to, to a certain degree, a properly ordered degree, the body that we are received and the sexuality revealed in our body. And these are not something that, that, that a simple uh, child behavior checklist is going to pick up on. I mean, this is something uh, richer and more robust and, and our, our limited instruments are not designed to, to measure that sort of thing. I'd like to drill down further on the connection to faith and how our Catholic faith doesn't support any form of transitioning to an LGBTQ identity or living out yeah. a same-sex yes. identity or pursuing same-sex attraction. It's one thing yes. to have an attraction. It's one thing to experience gender dysphoria. It's another thing to live it out. It's another thing to model that to other people. Uh, can you talk a little bit to how the Catholic faith on the topics of LGBTQ affirm actually actually the human person rather than denying what someone might argue is their reality. Yes, absolutely. I think that our, our Catholic anthropology, um, it, it, it essentially uh, champions and, and, and trumpets the dignity of the human person. So what we get in the culture is if, if I feel this way, that's who I am. It defines me and therefore I must live that out. Whether that's uh, gender dysphoria, that means I'm trans, I must adopt that as an identity and live it out. Or same-sex attraction, that defines me, I am gay, I must live that out. That's sort of the cultural narrative uh, that uh, that is out there that we, we hear and, and that young people are sort of, um, uh, sort of absorb. Um, but what the Catholic faith says is you may feel that way, but that's not who you are. You are so much more than that. You are so much more and called to something so much greater. You are a son and a daughter called to greatness. And John Paul II, who is one of my personal heroes, uh, was so good at this, at, at telling young people 
to, to not settle for, uh, for something less than holiness, less than the greatness uh, for which they were created. Uh, and so um, I believe that our Catholic anthropology and, and our Catholic faith c- corresponds to the deepest desires of the human heart. Uh, it doesn't tell us to, to settle for mediocrity and, and, and identify with our woundedness, but it invites us to something greater. Praise God. Praise God we have that. I think that sometimes that's what's missing when people look at the Catholic faith juxtaposed to this LGBTQ identity, and they think that uh, it's villainizing, that it's harmful. But the fact that the Christian Catholic worldview, that Catholic anthropology, is calling forth the transcendence, that higher calling of the human being that we're created for, that we're not just made for a fleshly desire-oriented happiness, but we're made for union with God. Amen. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, in, in the work that I do, um, that, that always is operative in the background for me is I want to try to understand this person's wounds so that I can help them move past them and to pursue their vocation in Christ, whatever that might be, because that's their path to deepest fulfillment. That's their path to holiness. That's their path to making the, the greatest difference in, in, in the world. And there's nothing that gives me more satisfaction from being able to help someone to do that. Dr. Sodergren, we have a question coming in for you from Brian. Brian from Appleton, Wisconsin. Brian, welcome to Trending. What is your question today for Dr. Sodergren? Oh, doctor, thank thank you for taking this topic and for being the light in the darkness for us. Uh, Sure. What it seems that that this uh, phenomenon of, of gender dysphoria is happening among school-aged children, and it's not something that we've seen for decades and decades. It seems to be something rather new, especially in the quantities that we're seeing. And so it suggests that it's an environmental variable that would be causing this because of the numbers that are increasing more recently that we don't see in the past. So I'm wondering, are there any statistics on this phenomenon occurring from public school children versus either Catholic school children or even uh, children in Catholic families that attend Mass weekly? Brian, this is a really great question. Um, And you're absolutely right. Even a lot of the researchers that are out there will acknowledge that that given the uh, unprecedented and rapid increase in gender dysphoria, and and in addition to the increase, um, Timur, you alluded to this earlier, uh, the 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 massive um, shift to adolescent girls um, uh, reporting with this this condition, because of of these changes, it does suggest that that there are some environmental influences going on. Um, gender dysphoria is something that we've known about uh, for a long time, and it, it tended to be something that was rare and predominantly uh, showed up in in males, uh, especially boys. And so this huge increase and now especially the, uh, a switch in the gender ratio where now it's it's uh, something like two, uh, two to three girls for every boy, whereas it used to be the right. other way around. Uh, makes us uh, wonder about these sorts of environmental influences. And you mentioned some specific ones about education uh, and about the faith 
uh, status of the family and things like that. As far as I know, there's no research yet looking at those specific factors, but these are great questions that should be studied uh, because I think th that it, it stands to reason that we might see some correlation starting to emerge uh, because uh, the, the, the way that children are raised, the values they're exposed to, the extent to which um, you know, they're, they're being presented the truth versus presented um, some type of, of uh, you know, pro-transitioning propaganda, which is becoming more and more prevalent, especially in public schools, um, it does stand to reason that it's going to have an effect mm -hmm. uh, on kids and the degrees to which they start um, pronouncing, yes, I'm trans. It's an interesting connection you just met, made to Brian's question that there's an increase in females identifying as gender dysphoric when it used to be more boys. And the question of from Brian having to do with you know religion, religious influence, does that make a difference? I think that although the research isn't quite there yet, I think there is just a blatant connection to faith and the respect that many of these girls who are identifying as transgender have made it very clear that the culture has been a tremendous pressure on them and the, it's crippling and I think that that speaks to the fact that these girls as young as seven eight years old are so heavily objectified sexually this pressure that all girls from the age that they're seven eight years old until until you know women die that there's this pressure to constantly be uh hot and available. And if you're not, you're irrelevant. Uh, so doing that to the older generations, being made to feel irrelevant in that respect, and then being made to be overly sexualized at a very young age, the only thing that helps to prevent the objectification of young women is that higher calling and that value that faith holds for the dignity of women. And I think that that connection is there that while it may not be in the research, it's a sign of this disconnect of faith within our society. Yeah, I agree completely, Timory. And I, I, I think you make a very, very, very important point. Uh, and, and, and around femininity in particular, you know, I, I wonder sometimes for a young girl growing up in our, in our culture today, uh, and how uh, womanhood is portrayed and how femininity is portrayed. Um, it, sometimes I think to myself, well, it's no wonder that some of these um, girls decide that they don't want to be women. Um, because there are so uh, few, few um, really dignified and, and captivating examples of what it means to be a woman in our society today. Uh, and with all the objectification and exposure to pornography uh, that is, is common among our youth today, uh, yeah, I, I can understand how uh, some of that is, is frightening and appalling, and it, it, it would make a young girl very uncomfortable uh, to, be, to become the woman that her body is, is uh, wanting her to become. Absolutely. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today on Trending. I greatly appreciate the work you're doing. If you'd like to get connected with Catholic psychologist, Dr. Andrew Sodergren, find him at ruawoodsinstitute.org. We'll post a link on social media as well. But there's also, to find a Catholic therapist in your area, catholictherapist.com. We'll post a link to that as well. Thank you so much for your time. We'll be right back here on Trending to share with you about the exciting new project we have, an audio mystery series that is clean and fun for the whole family brought to you by the Mary Beggars here on Relevant Radio. I'll be right back.
We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to Trending. If you haven't heard the news, it's time to get on the train. That is the train of On the Night Train, an auto mystery series brought to you by the Merry Beggars here on Relevant Radio. Joining me now to talk about this fun mystery series for the whole family is Peter Atkinson, the director of the Merry Beggars here at Relevant Radio. Peter, welcome to Trending. Timory, thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to be on. Okay, so today kind of finding content that's friendly for the whole family at times can be challenging, friendly and entertaining for everyone. Can you tell us a little bit, having been in the media industry, uh, what's happening today in the industry and why we're bringing on the night train to relevant radio? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my background is as an actor and a performer in New York City. Um, I was a professional actor. I started off Broadway in, in some uh, projects in New York. And uh, if you think it's bad from a consumer perspective, uh, it's even worse being an actor in New York City because you see all the stuff that's coming down the pipeline of the different production houses. And um, there's always an agenda. You know, there's always an agenda that is behind some some piece of entertainment. It's impossible to create a TV show or a movie or any piece of entertainment without some sort of worldview behind it. And I, I think most people listening probably will agree that, uh, you know, the big wigs at Netflix, HBO, Apple TV, and so on and so forth are not trying to create content that is um, supporting family values. You know, you wouldn't right. show Game of Thrones to a seven-year-old, um, and yet you're entrusting that same seven-year-old to... Uh, to the companies that make Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing with um, our, our next production, which I'm super excited about, uh, and, and what we did last year with The Christmas Carol, and the whole mission of The Merry Beggars is to try and heal the culture by producing entertainment that is fun, that is good, and that helps parents support, it, it supports parents in creating the type of culture that they're trying to build in their home. Excellent. So we are about to kick off. The production's done. We're releasing on the night train in the coming weeks. Can you tell us a little bit more about the release and about the mystery itself? Yeah. So this is this is a story that we've been working on for two years. Um, and when the playwrights and I were working uh, on this production, it was written by this lovely young woman, Kylie Hatch, who's just extremely talented. And she comes from a big Catholic family. Um and as we were working on the story, we asked ourselves, what would be a classic story that you can listen to this fall, you can listen to when it starts releasing on the 11th of September, or you can listen to in 10 years, and it's, uh, it's timeless, classic, exciting storytelling. Um, and so we landed on this story that we're calling On the Night Train. Um, and it follows two, two young Irish Catholic kids, Edith and Paul Mallard, as they race across America on board uh, a train. And there's a race going on. It's set in the 1880s. Uh, and there's a race going on between George Pullman's Night Train and Webster Wagner's Midnight Express. And they're, they're racing from Chicago to Sacramento, California, to see who can be the first passenger train across America. 
It's set right after the Civil War. America is healing from um, from the wounds that that war inflicted on us. And uh, there's lots of excitement about the turn of the century into the 1900s. And so at this moment in time, we encounter these two kids with, with the most advanced technology at that time was trains. And uh, their, their dad runs the night train and they're racing across America. And, you know, mystery uh, comes on the scene when accidents start happening to the train. And slowly it's revealed that, you know, there might be a, a plot of sabotage and it's up to the kids to solve it. And, and I don't want to give anything more away. So listeners will just have to tune in um, to, the, uh, to the stories once they, once they start getting released. I'm so excited. I love mysteries, Peter, and I love games too. It made me think of the game Ticket to Ride that has been a huge game over the last couple of years in my house. And I love mysteries. And I like listening to them. And that's part of what's so much fun about the Mary Beggars. Uh, listening to audio content is not what it used to be. A single narrator voice is what I think people often think of when they think of listening to an audio book today but can you talk about how the audio industry has changed and the level of entertainment that we find ourselves engaging in today absolutely um first of all ticket to ride is a wonderful board game <laughs> yes. uh, and if your listeners have not played it um they ought to pick up a copy in fact they can play ticket to ride while they listen to on the night train um the so we for this production you're right it's not it's not an audiobook with some sound effects it's a it's a full on dramatized uh adventure so we uh like i said we'll have spent over 2 years working on this story and we cast over a thousand actors we went through over a thousand auditions to find around 30 actors to play these different parts um, so we hope that when, you know, a family sits down to listen or, you know, you're listening as you play Ticket to Ride, um, that your imagination is just lit on fire and uh, in a way that, that no movie is going to do. Um, it's, also, it's also a long story. I mean, the, the script when we finished it was uh, 1,500 pages long. And so th this is a story that your family can listen to from... September of this year to March of next year. And, you know, we don't have any prizes set up, but we might, we might have to set up a prize for who can guess uh, who the criminal or the villain of this story is um, um, first. We'll have to set up some sort of contest. Um, it's interesting, too, because, you know, we're not the only ones getting into audio entertainment. Marvel um, has been releasing uh, audio stories. They released a couple um, based on Wolverine recently. Um, and these, again, are like, you know, full cast dramatizations. So it's evidence that, you know, big studios are looking at audio and saying, you know, this is something that audiences are looking for, that they're interested in listening to. And uh, so it's good to say, you know, I, I think our production is better than Marvel, but don't tell anyone that, you know, keep that just between <laughs> us. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm so excited. If people want to listen, where should they go? Yeah, so probably the easiest thing you can do right now is go to relevantradio.com or the Relevant Radio app, and you'll see um, little banners for On the Night Train. But you can always go to onthenighttrain.com as well, and uh, we'll have all the episodes there. We're also doing something sort of fun with the website. It's not released yet, so I'll give your listeners a, a sneak preview. But uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have um, – a map of the entire journey that the train is going on. So you can follow along as the train 
um, continues episode to episode and, and you and your kids can watch the train travel from Chicago to California. Well, we're also going to have um, pages and, and uh, portraits of each of the characters as well with background information on them and diagrams of all the train cars as well so that you can really dig into the world that, that we've spent years creating. Um, and so we think it'll be um, a really fun world for adults and children to jump into. We think it's going to be a really fun mystery for families to try and try and uh, unpack. And, you know, your, your last guest um, and, and you were speaking about how the culture is affecting young girls and, and young boys. And I have um, a daughter who's, you know, just about five months old. And already my brain is starting to turn to, you know, what is the type of stories that, that she's going to be forming her imagination around? What are the types of ideas about what being a, a young woman means? And one of the things that we wanted to do with this story is center the story around a family that loves each other, that is intact, where the, the father is sacrificing for the family and the mother is taking care of the children's hearts. And uh, we think we've done that. So we, we hope it'll be a way for families to not only enjoy entertainment together, but also have some hope that there is a model of a, of a good, loving family that their children can learn to imitate. I love that example that you just gave because I think many stories today are automatically built in that there's a broken home, a broken relationship. At Disney took with this model many, many years ago. And oh, yeah. with the divorce <laughs> culture we live in, I think much of the entertainment industry chose to follow in those footsteps to try and uh, make it more relatable to the brokenness that's happening in the culture. And I understand that relatability, but like you said, it set a model. And I remember the film The Quiet Place when that came out about about four mm. years ago. Here's this suspense thriller. And part of what was so great about the story was that the story had an intact family. And like you said, it was a family that you could relate to and emulate even in the midst of this high suspense, intense film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what was it? 50 years ago, dads became dopey. So the standard dad became you know, detached and, and sort of dumb. And, and the mother is either, um, you know, hysterical or so independent of their family that, that they're not, you know, there's no dignity in entertainment in being a mother that is forming the heart of the home and, and raising their children, which is so backwards. I mean, it's just, it's just un, unbelievably backwards, but this is the model that entertainment has followed for, for so many years. And a quiet place is a, a beautiful example. I mean, there, it's an incredibly well-written story, and the father in it sacrifices. Don't have ruined the movie for anyone, but um, the father sacrifices himself for for the family, and that's what fatherhood is. And it's presented in a beautiful, inspiring way that that men see that and they want to rise up to that. And that's that's just something that our culture needs more and more and more of. So, if we can be a small part of that, you know let's let's do it that's that's what that's where my heart is set well there's a movie recommendation for you a quiet place costco and everywhere else may already be promoting halloween so if you're looking for something a little more suspense oriented for the family that's one option but please we're asking you to check out the mary beggars latest production here on relevant radio on the night train a mystery to unpack together as a family you can sign up at relevantradio.com or on the relevant radio app 
onthenighttrain.com. Subscribe. The first episode is released September 11th. That's been Peter Atkinson here at Relevant Radio. I'll be back tomorrow here on Trending for our weekly Gentleman's Hour. Up next is a family rosary across America. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Let's be real, the challenge of pornography is significant in our culture, and we're going to talk about concrete steps of how to quit looking at pornography for good. So join me Wednesday during our weekly Gentleman's Hour. You don't have to be a gentleman to join us. We're also going to talk about how finding your calling, not your job, is so important. Join me Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.